most of you are aware that I recently went through half of a procedure that ultimately is going to bring both of my eyes to have their cataracts removed and to be able to see things really as they are, not as um, I have perceived them so wrongly to be. Now when I really think about what life has been like for me during this past week, it has a couple of analogies from my past life's history. Certainly the first time I ever got corrective lenses upon my terribly nearsighted eyes, the world just seemed so very different. I had no idea that the world looked the way that it did, because I didn't really know that I had the problem with vision, and, and I had the corrective lenses put on, and I said, wow, things really do look different. And of course, the other time in my own life's history, when that kind of a transformation took place that overwhelmed my mind and heart and brought everything to just seem different was when the Lord saved me as a 17-year-old. And I began to see things that I never saw before and know things I never knew before. And I began to read God's book, God's Word, the Bible. And everything for me in Scripture from that point of my conversion just seemed to just glisten off of the page. I just couldn't believe the things I was reading in the Bible. And that doesn't mean I understood everything. In fact, most probably most things I didn't understand. It just seemed, though, it was a wonderful revelation that God gave of himself that just often just took my heart away. And the things that Jesus said, particularly in the Gospels, just, I had no idea. I just never knew. And I became aware of those things. And I began to really view the Bible as an amazing book. And I have no sympathy with people that tell me the Bible is boring. I understand people who don't like what the Bible says. They think that sin is depressing. It's all gloom and doom. They think of judgment as a wretched idea that they would hope that God would infinitely postpone. Uh, They don't like the thought of a holy God who sees all things and knows all things and can do all his holy will a God who makes ethical distinctions of right and wrong and of good and evil I understand where they don't like the thought of a God who is worthy of all honor, love, worship and praise but the idea that the Bible is a boring book can hardly be maintained in the light of what the Bible actually says and reveals. Okay, I know it gets the blood pressure of unbelievers to be raised and it can get um, their hackles up and anger against the things that the Bible says. But at least it's of an interest that it does raise the hackles of unbelievers where they get angry and venomous in their opposition to the Bible. The Bible captures the attention of even unbelieving people. Because it's an amazing book. It's a book that's filled with dramatic narratives. The narrative of the fall and of the flood. The call of Abraham. The descent of Joseph's sons into Egypt. The whole Joseph story. This is the stuff they make Broadway plays about. This is the stuff they make movies about. The Exodus, the wilderness wanderings, the conquest of Canaan, David and Goliath, David and Bathsheba, David and Absalom. They make lots of movies about David and lots of books about David. Solomon and his mines. 
Yeah, the Bible makes some mention of the what nature of the mines, we don't know. But tremendous wealth that he gleaned from his mines, his wives, his building projects, the temple, Solomon's palace, the stories of the prophets, the kings, the promises, the fulfillment of the promises we find in Jesus. Jesus himself, his birth. We have Christmas, don't we? It's a result of the reality that the Lord Jesus was born into this world, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The life of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the parables of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, building of the church, the apostolic labors recorded in the book of Acts, the letters to the churches, the capstone of it all in the amazing book of Revelation. All this holds forth endless matters of interest. Endless matters that spark the imagination. It produces great works of art. Novels, movies. I'd rather read the book, but the movies have been made. And of course, sermons that have enriched modern culture in ways the average person is sadly quite unaware. I know there are people with little imagination. People with a little sense of wonder, little faith, and little understanding that can make the Bible a book of just rules and regulations. They can make the Bible a book of just criticisms and condemnations. They can make the Bible a book of rebukes and reprimands. That's something people do. That's not something God gave us in His words. This is a book that's filled with interest. In fact, our highest interest. Our interest in life and in eternity. In the farewell discourse of John chapters 14 through 16 is to me a prime example of the most interesting features of the Bible. Again, it comes in the context of a narrative of Jesus' imminent departure from his disciples that produces within them troubled hearts, deep concern for their Lord, deep concern for themselves, and Jesus' concern that they would continue on in a way of faith and faithfulness in the light of the critical events soon to transpire. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he gives them comfort. He ministers hope. He speaks words of promise. Then he also issues challenges. In chapter 15, we begin to see some of those challenges begin to unpack. See, they've entered into a relationship with Jesus and the Father in which these men provide the vanguard of a new creation. They're called the first fruits of the new creation. The work of Jesus is a work that in his death and resurrection begins to make all things new. God's engaged in a work that through Jesus will ultimately end, as we saw in Romans chapter 8 in our Bible reading, of the recovering of a lost world, of a return to the pre-fall condition of the Garden of Eden when there was no curse, there was no sin, there was no suffering. The return of the Garden is a return of dwelling with God and God dwelling with mankind. That's what Eden was all about. The man walked with the Lord in the Garden in the cool of the day. In the place of mankind's dwelling with God in a Garden condition 
ended because of sin. And yet God's enterprise of garden planting did not end. Noah made a vineyard. Got into trouble as a result of it. Got drunk. But nonetheless, vineyards are all part of God's plan and purpose. Israel itself is a nation. It was to be a land of plenty. Land of flowing with blessing. The garden of God restored as we saw in Genesis 13 and in Isaiah chapter 50. It's actually called the garden of God. The land of Canaan. But that land also was corrupt and polluted and defiled because of sin. But God's not done with the work of garden planting. He's not done with the work of bringing creation back to its rights of full communion with Him in a garden of joy and delight and fellowship. In Jesus, God is now going to bring forth a harvest of souls in which in whom the creation's blessings will be restored. New command to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. I often see in the reading of the letters how that language is found again and again and again. But Paul could write to the Colossians and speak about being fruitful in every good work and increasing or multiplying in the knowledge of God. Fruitfulness and multiplication. It meets us again and again as the Acts of the Apostles describes the, the, the work of evangelism and the spread of the gospel in the world. Of the world again coming under the government of God in Christ, being subdued through the work of the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth, that God's people will ultimately be blessed with the knowledge of God and with fruitfulness in his service. And when Jesus comes to this 15th chapter of John's Gospel, he's presenting himself as that very one who comes to fulfill this purpose of God in new creation. He's a vine that will produce branches that will ultimately spread out to fill the earth with faithful fruit-bearing disciples through whom all of the earth will be blessed. Jesus' language is that he's the true vine. He's not like Israel, the false vine, the apparent vine, the God that the vine that God planted, and he looked for fruit, and what did he see? He saw, he saw wild grapes. He didn't see the justice and the righteousness that he sought for. That's what was God was after. A believing, faithful people. Jesus now is the true vine to bring into fulfillment. The very picture of vines and vineyards and gardens and joyful fellowship with God in places where streams abound, in places where fruit abounds, in places where the tree of life and the garden of God is enjoyed and known. He is the true vine to bring into fulfillment all that these pictures of the Old Testament becomes becomes fulfilled through. And then he also tells us the Father is the gardener vine dresser in the ESV there's other translations that have other things but it's gardener, that's what the word means he's the one who owns the garden he's the one who's the proprietor of the garden he's the one who is lord of the garden and he's lord over all that he surveys as he has planted this fruit bearing vine in the sending of Christ to bring salvation to the ends of the earth and it's the father who does the work of gardening and that 
every branch, Jesus says, that bears not fruit, he casts out of the garden. It's not useful. It's just a stick that you throw away. We have some bushes out here that are dead and dying, and their branches are just all over the place. So when I go by and I see them, I kick them. <laughs> I just kick them away. Kick them underneath, or I take them and I throw them in the garbage. They're good for nothing. They're useful for nothing. They never bear anything of uh, that's beautiful or anything that's good because it's it's basically dead. And the branches that professing Christians say they're Christians but they're not and they're dead fruitless for false disciples God simply purifies his garden by casting them out church discipline is usually the means of getting that done or some other way of departure or even death for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and some sleep God has his way of cleansing his garden of caring for his garden of making sure his garden the church um, will bear fruit And then there are the fruit-bearing branches that uh, he cleanses, we're told. He cleanses them. I know the word is pruning that we read, but it's just the word for cleansing. And Jesus says, now you have already been cleansed through the word that I've given to you. It's the same word that's translated pruning in the previous verse. God is the God who cleanses his garden. Cleanses his garden of all that defiles. Think of the serpent and the defilement of the serpent that should have been cast out of the garden. Um, God is the God who, who cleanses where sin has raised its ugly head. And God is the God who is concerned that even fruit-bearing branches might bear even more fruit. What a skillful gardener the Father is, achieving in his garden through the work of teaching and correction and formative discipline and, and all of the rest, a greater and greater Fruitfulness and fruit, fruit, a fruit that would be born among his people. So we've looked at the vine, that's Jesus. We've looked at the gardener, which Jesus says is the Father. We come on today to say a bit about the branches. The branches, that's you, that's me. Jesus planted is the planted vine um, through whose work the garden of God is restored. The Father is the gardener whose work tends and keeps and perfects this garden enterprise. What do we do? What do the branches do? What is our responsibility in this whole picture? Well, to put it simply, our work is persevering and fruit-bearing. Simple as that. We are to persevere in bearing fruit for God. And so... Very simply, our message this morning is twofold. First of all, what does it mean to bear fruit? What does that expression mean? Jesus says it a lot. He speaks a lot about bearing fruit. What does it mean to bear fruit? And then secondly, what does it mean to persevere in bearing fruit? So let's begin. First of all, with this whole matter of what does it mean to bear fruit? Now, when I was saved, I not only had a great love for the Bible, but I had also... The first exposure to many different understandings of the Bible that Christians I met would put forth. And when I was first saved, uh, I had more than one person inform me that this call of Jesus to bear fruit meant that my role and the role of other believers was to make disciples of other people. That the bear fruit meant to lead others to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to influence others and recruit others to the gospel. New believers were your fruit. That seemed to make sense to me, to an extent. That creation, be fruitful and multiply, meant to populate the world, meant to make babies, at least to multiply. Um, But the problem is a number of things. First of all, the making of disciples doesn't bear fruit so much as it adds branches to the vine. You witness the gospel to someone else and they become a Christian, they don't become fruit. They become branches in the vine. Every branch in me. See, the whole thing is not to make a disciple after yourself. It's not to make someone that's your baby that you tend. It's to unite that person to Jesus. It's to bring them to faith in Jesus so that they may be incorporated into the vine. That they may have the, 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 the benefit of, of the root and of the, uh, the resources and the, uh, the good of being part of the vine that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they become part of the every branch in me. The fruit of evangelism is not fruit we bear, but engrafting new branches into the vine. That's the whole goal of evangelism, the engrafting of new branches into the vine. And then the other thing, or the second thing is that evangelism uh, is not our fruit, but it's the fruit of the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. In other words, it's nothing to do with us, that people come to believe. Paul using another imagery of a field in which things are planted and grow. He says, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, and therefore I and Apollos are nothing but God who gives the increase. The fact that things grow in the garden of God is not our doing. We don't give life to anyone. God is the one who gives life. We might proclaim the word of life, but we can't put the word of life into people's hearts. We can't convert them. We can't bring them to the knowledge of the Son of God. New converts simply are not our fruit. It's God's fruit through the gospel. Luther said it best. No, I didn't say it best. He said a little bit sarcastically that Philip and I, we drank beer and the word of God did the work. <laughs> the word of God did the work. You have to be German to get that part of the drinking of beer. No, you don't really, but you understand that that was his statement. We just trusted the word. The word of God is the thing that did the work. And then something else needs to be said. Not only is it that evangelism is not our fruit, but the fruit of the gospel, and that evangelism just attaches others to the vine, doesn't make them our fruit, but that evangelism often uh, bears fruit for God even when the means prove unfaithful. Unfaithful servants. Have you ever heard people give testimony of the fact that they came to faith through someone who doesn't no longer walk with God? They're very quick to preach the gospel perhaps, but they themselves were not truly converted. They're unconverted people through whom others become converted. They're never part of the vine. They never really bear fruit. 
but yet they preach the gospel and God uses that to bring others to become attached to Christ. Those converted under the ministries of unconverted people are not seen as having them bear fruit. (laughs) They're not Christians at all. The fruit of new converts is not ours again. It's, it's, It's the Lord's. And then there's one other thing that needs to be said. It is this matter of bearing fruit in the words of verse 8. Jesus says, By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. There's something about the bearing of fruit that demonstrates that we are Jesus' disciples. Now some of you have endeavored to lead others to Christ and to bear witness to your faith and you've not borne much fruit in terms of new converts. Maybe you know one or two people, handful of people that have been influenced by your testimony, that have come to faith as a result of some things you've said or a book that you've given or some other ways that you've endeavored to have an impact on other people for the gospel. Is that a question of whether it proves or disproves the reality of your discipleship? Whether you've had great results as a work as a result of, of witness? Again, it's not in our hands who becomes Christians and doesn't become Christians. It's God's work. We look to be faithful. But it's not a question of whether we're saved or not saved, whether we're disciples or not disciples. But everywhere else in Scripture, the whole question of the proof of discipleship is the question of a different kind of fruit. Not the fruit of new believers, but the fruit of righteous living. The fruit of righteous living. See, the bearing of fruit in the garden pictures of the Old Testament and in the New invariably refer to the qualities of the life that the grace of God forms in people. Look at the vineyard song of Isaiah chapter 5. Go back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 5, just to demonstrate that this is true. But Isaiah 5, you have this song of the vineyard. Let me sing for my beloved. My love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine van in it, a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard? Like God did everything to make Israel prosper, to make Israel fruitful. And yet, when he looked for it to yield grapes, it yielded wild grapes. The whole conclusion to the matter in verse 7 is this. For the vineyard of Yahweh of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for what? New converts? How, many, how much did Israel impact the nations because I planted them in Canaan? Well, that's not the picture at all. God was looking not for how they were influence, influential, it's how they were godly, how they were holy, how they were righteous, how they conformed to his mind and will. He looked for justice. The whole bloodshed. He 
look for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, the bottom line is, God never asked of Israel, never asked of anyone, to be influential. But always to walk before Him. Always to cultivate a relationship to Him. The garden pictures of Old and New Testament have it that the garden is the place of our fellowship. The garden is a place of our approach to God. The garden is the place of walking with God. And God's requirement of His people, whom He plants as a vineyard or He puts His branches in the vine, is that we walk with Him. Micah 6 and verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord? Bow myself before God on high. How should I approach the Lord? How should I engage in fellowship with the Lord? What's the basis of my union and communion and relationship with the God of heaven and earth? Shall I come with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Just increase the amount of sacrifices we bring. With tens of thousands of rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What are all the things that pagan people think will impress God? Will bring fellowship with God? Will bring a relationship of union and communion with God? And God says, who's required these things at your hand? Who's asked for such things? And Micah concludes with these words. He says, He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. There's a number of these expressions in the Old Testament of what God requires of His people, what He requires of His vineyard. What he requires of the people that would approach him and have communion and fellowship with him. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, just one more of these. It's just so important to see how this is emphasized. It's not just New Testament realities. The Old Testament was all based upon laws and rituals and rules and regulations and sacrifices. No, not at all. The Old Testament was all about union and communion with God was all about approaching God in the way that He requires. And that's moral. That's ethical. That's relational. That's addressing the quality of the life we live before the living God. Look at Deuteronomy 10. Moses is rehearsing the whole matter of the matter of the golden calf. The apostasy of the people. And God's still renewing his, co- his covenant with Israel in spite of all of their sin. And ultimately there's a new generation that will come to occupy the land. And God says this to them in verse 12. And now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God require of you? What are the essential things you're to be concerned about? How you've impacted other people? What other people are saying about you? No. It has to do with your relationship to Him. 
but to fear the Lord your God. Let me, before I read it, let me just point this out. There's five things that are here. There are five verbs that are used. Verbs of action. You know, the verb is usually a verb of action or state of being, state of mind. But this is a verb, verb of action. And when you have five things or sometimes seven things in the Bible, those odd numbers, very often it's the middle thing that becomes the fulcrum upon which everything turns. Everything centers around the middle one. In other words, the first two lead up to it, the next two flow from it. And you usually find when five or seven are found of things that are listed, it's the middle one that addresses the things of the heart, that addresses the things that are really central to what we might call Christian spirituality. And so we find it here. We find it here in this list of five things. What's the middle thing? It's the briefest thing. It's simply to love Him. To love Him. What does the Lord require of you? It's to love Him. What surrounds that thought of love? The supreme matter of obligation before us, that before us is to love Him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Well, it's to fear Yahweh your God. Now, fear is not something that's different from love. Fear is just something that is um, it's closely related to love. Just as a, you fear your father. Not with a dread, not with a desire to run from him, but with a healthy respect, with a healthy regard for his authority. You have that sense of God's authority, of God's lordship over you, and you live before him with regard for his eye, regard to please him. So that's what the fear of God means. It factors God into all of life, and then to walk in all his ways. So you fear him. You walk in all of his ways. The central thing is you love him. And then flowing out of that is to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. The final thing is don't stop. Don't say, well, I've done enough. Don't say, well, look, I've uh, lived 50 years as a Christian. Now it's retirement. So I just quit. You can't quit. The whole essence of the Christian life is continuance in faith and in faithfulness. And so the Old Testament clearly puts the centerpiece of what the garden is about, what living before God is about in the matters of moral and ethical concern, the quality of the life that we live before God. Doing justice, loving kindness, walking humbly with Him, fearing Him, walking in His ways, loving Him, serving Him, keeping His commandments and His statutes. Is the New Testament any different? Well, the New Testament, the language of fruit, again, it always refers to the quality of life issues. Romans chapter 6. Remember how Paul says, he says this. I won't ask you to turn there. He says in Romans uh, 6, in like 20, 21, and 22, he says, what fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? What fruit did you have in the things of which you are now ashamed? What's he talking about? Your evangelism didn't succeed? You get as many converts as you should have, and so you're ashamed of that? No. He's talking about the fruit of life issues. 
of the rebellion and the, the failure to serve and honor and please and consider the God of heaven and earth and all of your choices. And you had no fruit in the things of which you are now ashamed. You say to yourself, I wish I was converted earlier because I just lived years and years in vanity and pride. Remember that song, Caring Not My Lord Was Crucified, Knowing Not that it was for me he died at Calvary. We lived in years of vanity and pride. And Paul says, what, what fruit did you have of the things that you are now ashamed? But now that you've been set free from sin and become servants to God, he says, you have your fruit. What does that mean? Lots of converts? No. You have your fruit unto sanctification in the end. Eternal life. Your fruit in your life is the life of sanctified living. Philippians 1 and verse 11, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Not only Romans 6 and Philippians 1, you have James 3 and verse 17, but the wisdom that is from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy and good fruits impartial and sincere and the harvest of righteousness another agricultural image a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace again this fruit that Jesus is speaking about is the fruit of godliness it's the fruit of righteousness it's the fruit of pursuing the things that are pleasing in the sight of our God and of course the capstone of all these considerations is Probably the first thing you thought of was Galatians 5 and verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I do believe the Christians I met as an early believer were well-meaning in their understanding of fruit. They wanted to see the gospel advance in the world. They wanted to see Christians have an impact in the world. But you know what, folks? Let me tell you this. The way in which God is pleased normally to use the church in the conversion of the lost is not by what we say. It's by what we do. So how in the world do you come to that conclusion? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins with the blessed character of the people of God. Poor in spirit, mourners, meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, peaceableness, purity, mercy. These are the things that constitute kingdom life, the quality of life that God gives to his people in his kingdom. And it's only after he describes that that he begins to speak about the relationship to the world. Well, the world will persecute you. You, in turn, look to be a blessing to the world. How so? You're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. The city set upon a hill that cannot be hid. Let your light so shine before men that they may not hear your good words, but see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. What this world needs is visible demonstration of the power of the grace of God in transformed lives for the gospel to have credibility in the world. Because folks, that's been our problem. The world looks at the church and basically says put up or shut up. And the church hasn't put up and the world says who needs it? They don't see the power of a new creation. 
So we can talk all we want about a new creation, but if we're not seeing it lived out, demonstrated in godly marriages, in parents caring for their children, children raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, they're not seeing it in Christians loving one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples in the love that you have towards one another. If they're not seeing it in the unity that the church expresses one to another, where Jesus says by this, will people know I've come into the world. The reason this can't exist, that people have such unity and and humility before one another and godly respect for one another, this does not exist in a fallen world unless the grace of God comes and makes it so. And then the people look at the Christian's church and says, this can't happen in any other way, but that, that gospel must be so. God sent His Son into the world to bring these conditions about. God's brought in His Son a new creation. He's brought about a restoration of garden life where the people of God dwell together in love and in mutual respect and with one heart and with one spirit striving together for the work of the gospel. That's how people used to get converted. Look at how these Christians live. And that would be compelling. A compelling argument. Well, I've used my time and I haven't really gone to the second point. The second point is persevering in this fruit bearing. I think there's enough in this passage and enough in the scriptures itself to make that in its own sermon. So I'm just going to conclude here by just saying how you know, the whole emphasis of this passage is a Christ-centeredness. It's abiding in Him. It's remaining in Him. It's looking to Him. It's being, it's drawing from His strength. It's drawing from His example. It's drawing from everything that we possess in Jesus Christ. And the point of a new creation is not that we've achieved something. It's that Jesus has achieved something for us. He's achieved newness of life. He's achieved the blessing of the Spirit. He's achieved all the state, the conditions that are needed. That even in this world in which sin still abounds, grace superabounds. And even though we're not back in paradise, a bit of paradise has come to each of us and to us together as a community that we could know something of what Paul says we live in hope for. We live in hope for the full deliverance from the curse. We live in hope for the full deliverance of the creation from vanity. And we see this usefulness. We see this meaning. We see this purpose. We see there's a life that can be lived in this present evil age that will give honor and glory to our God and King and show forth the blessedness and the fruitfulness of His garden kingdom and that will have an impact in the world bring the people of the world to say this is not something you see in the world that just happens by nature this is something that's the achievement of the God of all grace may we so live and labor and relate to one another abiding in Christ first and foremost as a result of our abiding in Christ abiding with one another in mutual love and regard May God be pleased to produce a bountiful fruit in his vineyard 
they'll be a compelling witness to the people of this world that God is among us of a truth. May the Lord bless his word. Let's go to him together in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time in the scriptures and we're thankful for the reality of the working of your grace. We're thankful for the reality of a new creation. We're thankful that we can be part of that new creation people. We can be a people who do taste of the benefits and the blessings of the tree of life, which is for the healing of the nations. You know the benefits of communion with you and walking before you and knowing the reality that through you we are able to abound in every good work, in every fruit-bearing endeavor to beautify your garden people and to bring honor and glory to you in a fallen world. So be pleased to bless the word to your people and strengthen us in your grace as we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.